The 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, what we're going to see tonight might be centuries removed from us in time, but with regard to relevancy, it's as relevant as the, as the day that ink was wet upon the page. It is amazing sometimes to really um, discover or to see again, remind ourselves of how relevant the Word of God is to daily life. I want to talk to you tonight about leaning on people and on things. Now that sounds kind of cliche-ish to talk about you know, leaning on somebody, and cliches turn us off. But I don't want you to miss the point tonight because all of us have dealt with this matter of leaning on people and leaning on things, crutches, rather than leaning on Him. When we're children, we lean on our parents, and that's all right. But as we grow, you know, as we grow up and get a little older and we get uh, in school and we begin to get an education and we have friends at school, we begin to lean on peer groups, our peers. And their acceptance and approval of us is so important. In fact, our day is made often, uh, how we feel in the day is made by how our peers respond to us when we first see them. So important. And sometimes we lean on this education. I'm going to get an education. That's going to fix me for life. And as we get to be adults, we lean on our mate or we lean on our job, the source of my income, and I'm going to, that's, that's important to me. The most important thing is my job. We lean on these parent role models that come into our life or we, we lean on financial security and those kind of things become the crutches on which we lean. And they are so painful when they're removed. Here's a guy that he's leaning on his job and that's, that's his crutch. And he loses that job, it's devastating. Or a, loses, a person loses his spouse or we lose a friend, or we lose financial security, the most painful thing in the world is, have the, is to have the crutches kicked out from under you. I want to say three things about crutches in general. I want you to get these down, please. First of all, crutches become a substitute for the Lord. They become a substitute for the Lord. Instead of leaning on Him, we lean on them. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is a refuge, is a crutch. The eternal God is a refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I love it. Underneath what? Underneath the problems, underneath the sorrows, underneath the financial loss, the loss of a... Underneath that are the arms of God, the everlasting arms. He wants to be our crutch. Isaiah 41.10, Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will hold you by my righteous right hand. What God is saying is, I, I want to hold you up. I want to strengthen you. I want to help you. I want to be your crutch. But I can't hold you up if you're leaning on someone else. Crutches become a substitute for the Lord. Secondly, 
They keep our focus horizontal. That is, instead of this way, they keep our focus this way. And so I'm looking here for my security and my help and my strength rather than there. They keep our focus horizontal. Not only that, crutches provide only temporary relief. They work for a while, but not long. And we're constantly having to find someone else to lean on, something to lean on, because we find the inadequacy of the crutch that we're using. They provide only temporary relief. When Martin Luther conceived the Reformation, he got in trouble with the prelate of the church. He was a marked man. And so his friends took him on out to a little retreat place. It was like a fortress on a high hill overlooking the Rhine River. From this fortress, Martin Luther wrote his friend Melanchthon, the genius of the Reformation, by the way, and he said, Oh, Philip, Philip, everything is lost and there is no hope, not even here. And he left the fortress on the hill overlooking the, on the Rhine and he went right back out into the eye of the storm and there he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Now with your Bible in hand I want us to read together beginning in verse 6 of chapter 18, 1 Samuel. Verse 6 begins, and it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. But uh, now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked on David with suspicion from that day on, and there began this civil war in the life of Saul. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from, from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in the hand of Saul. And Saul hurled this spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Twice he did that. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now you say, well, so what? Here's a man angry with another man. So what? Well, just think about that. Have you ever had your life threatened? Has anybody ever threatened to kill you other than your wife? You know, have, have you ever had your life? Can you imagine what that must be like? A friend of mine who's pastoring out in Wenatchee, Washington one time, led a lady to the Lord. Her husband became so enraged by her decision He's going to kill it, kill my preacher friend. I mean, he was a marked man. He said, you want to know how to get a bad case of the upset stomach, you know. You step outside of your office, you know, any day expecting somebody to gun you down. 
And he said the woman told him that, that the, the night he was going to baptize her, he said that, that her husband was, was threatening and he was going to walk into the church and gun him down in the, in the baptistry. I said, well, now, you know, what'd you do? He said, well, you know, he said, I, I got out there, but he said, I was, my knees were knocking so much that you could see waves, you know, in the water. I, that, that, that would be a little frightening. Yet, is, can you imagine, here is David, and Saul has his spear, and he pins it to the wall, trying to pin his head there. Verse 12 tells us why he said Saul was afraid of David. Let me tell you something, most of the time, Somebody who, who, is, who is out to get you is usually somebody who fears you. You ever notice that? Somebody who is out to get you is usually somebody who fears you in some way. Fears what you're going to do. Fears what you're going to be. Fears what you're going to say. Now I want you to turn with me. We're going to follow this little story to night, chapter 19. Verse 8. Now, I'm just going to read these passages and comment just, you know, uh, briefly because I want you to get the flow of this. Now, now here, here's the point. Here's the proposition. Here's a man who had all these crutches that he was leaning on. And God is going to remove every one of these crutches until David is to a point that he can absolutely and totally lean on God. And I want us to see the lesson here that God is going to take out of your life every crutch that you're leaning on until you're able to lean on Him. It's called brokenness. Takes away the crutches until we can lean on Him. First crutch is His position. Now David, even though Saul was threatening him all the time, threatening to kill him, he was he was prospering. He just went on back to work at his job. He was made charge, placed in charge as a commander of a division of army men. He was like a general in the army. And he had this highest ranking position. He was an official, a, a ranking official in, in Saul's army. A, 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 a coveted position, really, because God was prospering David. Now look in chapter 19, verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house. This sound familiar with his spear in his hand. David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. And what I want you to do is underline that word, fled and escaped, because we're going to see that same word again and again. He fled and he escaped. The first crutch was the crutch of his position. He was a ranking official in Saul's army and he had this position of status and importance and rank and he, lo he lost it he fled the scripture goes on to say that he fled to the house of his wife he went home to his wife her name was Micah 
And we've alluded to her a lot in this series, and kind of in a joking way, because when Saul gave her to David as his wife, he was really more wanting to get rid of her than he was to bless David. As a matter of fact, if you want to look back to chapter 18, verse 20, you'll see what that's about. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, and Saul thought, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. I mean, he gave her to David as, not as a reward, but to be a snare to him. He, but Michael loved David, and they had this relationship. He had his wife. He went home to his wife. He lost his position, but he had his wife, and he went home to her. He lost his wife. You look to verse 11 of chapter 19. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael David's, but Michael David's wife told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul the, sent messenger David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the guilt of, quilt of goat's hair at his head. So Saul said to Micah, Why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemy go, so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I put you to death? His own wife turns on him, lies to him, lies about him, walks out on him. So here you have a man who has a position and he loses it. He has a wife and she turns on him, deserts him, lies about him. He loses his wife. Third, verse 18. Now David fled, there's the word again, and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. Now the third person that David is leaning on, Samuel. Now Samuel is this confidant. He is this counselor. He is this man of God who gives David all this marvelous encouragement and advice. So he has this counselor. And they're at Naoth together. Samuel, this prophet of God, this man of God. He loses him. Look in verse 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan. He lost his confidant. He lost his security. He comes in verse 1 of chapter 20 to Jonathan. Now we've already seen this beautiful relationship that, that David has developed with Jonathan, his closest friend. Their hearts are knit together. And they love each other with a kind of marvelous and divine love that de developed between these two young men. 
At this point in time, David's emotional security is breaking down. And you can see that in chapter, one, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. What have I done, he said? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? I don't understand what I've done. And this emotional security that David possessed when he walked out and and confronted the, the, the giant, Goliath, is gone, is breaking down, is disintegrating. And he can't understand what's, what's happening to him. Look at verse 2. And he said to him, Far from it you shall not die. Jonathan saying, Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. You're not going to die. My father would have told me that, you, that he would. So why should my father hide this thing from me? Is, is it not... Uh, is it not so that this is the way it would be? And David's paranoid. Look here. He said, Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. What he's saying is, I'm walking around in a minefield, and death is everywhere around me. Your father's out to get me. He's paranoid. He's absolutely frightened. He's, he's lost his, his emotional security. He's depressed. Sound familiar? Look at verse 42. He lost his best friend. For chapter 20 is really this chronicle of this marvelous um, plan that Jonathan and David devised to, to, to see if his life was really on the line, to see if it was safe to go back and and, and into the army of Saul again. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants. Then he arose and departed. While Jonathan went into the city. Now he's had position and he's lost it. He's had a wife he could go to in time of need. She's turned on him. He's had a close confidant and counselor, and, there, and he's gone out of his life. No prophet of God there. He's had a best friend. That best friend now has been removed from his life. And he's all alone. And now he comes to the last crutch, and that is his self-respect. I want to show you one of the most remarkable stories in all the Bible, and most of us have never really noticed this story. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Skip to verse 8. And David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? He said, I'm frightened for my life. Is there a weapon? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, with me because... The king's matter was urgent. Look at verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now I want you to underline the word Gath. I wonder if there's anybody here who could tell me what we know about Gath. Well, that's the country where Goliath came from. That's the country where the giant came from. 
And here is this champion of champions, our hero, and he's going right back to Gath, the very country where Goliath, the enemy, the Philistine, come from, to the king. Now look at this. When he got there, the servants of Achish said to him, Is not, that is the king of Gath, is not this David, the king of the land? What's he doing here? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Isn't this the guy that everybody was hailing as the king? What's he doing in Gath? Now you would imagine that if David ever went to Gath, he would have gone there to slay everybody else. But notice what happens. And David took these words to heart. And what? He greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. I can't believe it. So he disguised. Have you ever noticed this before? You ever read this story? So he disguised his sanity before them. He acted like an insane man. He's lost his self-respect. Where's this courage of this champion? He disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate, scratched on the doors with his fingernails, and let his saliva run down into his beard. He foamed at the mouth. He acted like a crazy man. Can you believe it? Now, if you don't think the Bible has humor, you haven't read the next verse. And Achish, then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why would you bring him to me? Don't I have enough madmen around here? Say, aren't there enough nuts here? You know, are you going to have to bring me another one? Sounds like your office, doesn't it? He hired him, and we have enough nuts <laughs> running around here. I mean, why would... You, why would you bring this guy to me, this goof, this crazy? We got enough crazies. Now watch. We're talking about the removal of crutches. We're talking about things that we lean on rather than God. We trust in rather than God. We depend on rather than Him. Position. Ah, oh, just to get that job. Man, just to get that position, i got to have it. If I get that position, I've got it made for life. If I just had her, if I just had him, he'd take care of me for the rest of my life. My wife, I lean on. She's always there for me. There's this prophet of God. God has given me this man. He's my confidant. He's my counselor. He's my shrink. Man, when I get in trouble, all I got to do is go to him. He's going to help. I'm so dependent on him. I got my self-respect. I know what, you know, I'm, I, I do my own thing. And God takes all the crutches away. There's some of you tonight right there and you've leaned on everything but the Lord I almost went into absolute terror a while ago when I thought about this little book I was going to bring in here and I noticed it wasn't up here oh no I thought but here it is 
A.W. Tozier, I alluded to him this morning, has this, oh, it's, you, need, I, you, know, you need to get this book, The Pursuit of God. Every now and then when I get cold in my heart, I read this book. In a chapter called The Blessedness, listen, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, here's what he says. I just want to read this portion of it. Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, He first prepared for him by creating a world of useful things and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. He made all these things for our delight, for our sustenance. In the Genesis account of creation, these are simply called things. They were made for man's uses, but they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to the man. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine. Listen to this. In the deep heart of a man was a shrine, a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God. Without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God potential sources of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of His central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk of stubborn and aggressive usurpers, there in the moral dust, stubborn and, ugre- and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. That civil war. And where God needs to be and God was meant to be and God deserves to be, these things war with one another. Who's going to be first? He concludes this chapter like this. The ancient curse will not go away painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die obedient to our command. He must be torn out of the heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And we, sh- we shall need to steal, S-T-E-E-L, ourselves against, the, against His piteous begging and to recognize it as springing out of self-pity one of the most reprehensible sins of the human heart. And this was his prayer. Listen to this prayer. Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up my toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. 
Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself shall be the light of it, and there shall be no more night there. Amen and amen. I'm talking about brokenness. I'm talking about something that goes against the grain of what we want to hear. And I can remember preaching one time in a church a series of sermons on brokenness. I got all kinds of resistance to that. And people would say to me, that's not theologically, that's not theologically sound, biblically true. God doesn't do that, but He does. And He's going to remove those crutches that are in our life until we lean on Him. Until we lean on Him. Now there are two things in application, then we'll quit and go home. Number one, there's nothing wrong with leaning if you lean on the Lord. There's nothing wrong with being weak. There's nothing wrong with leaning. There's nothing wrong with being dependent. There's nothing wrong with being helpless. There's nothing wrong with leaning if you lean on the Lord. Lofton Hudson once said, or Hudson Taylor once said, God uses the people who are weak and feeble enough to lean on Him. Can I say it again? God uses the people that are weak and feeble enough to lean on Him. Second ap application. Being stripped of all our substitutes is the most painful of all the experiences of life. And it is. When you substitute something for God, and when you give, as A.W. Tozer said, a place to things in the throne room of your life that only God deserves, when those are stripped away, it is the most painful experience in all of life and there is nothing like the agony of having that ripped out of your life. There's nothing like losing a job when that job is that crutch. There's nothing like losing a reputation when that reputation is the most important thing. There's nothing like losing position when that position becomes your crutch. You know something? If you lean on the Lord, you'll always have an adequate crutch. Let's pray together. Father, we hear this message from you, but we don't know how to respond to it. Sometimes we don't even, we're not even willing to admit that we lean on things other than you. Sometimes it frightens us to even think about the fact that we have to give up some of our crutches. We've found such security in them. And yet, Lord, the very thought of losing these things sends terror into our heart. Therefore, we know that we have leaned on something that is only temporary 
it's not permanent, could be lost today. And Lord, before the pain and the agony of seeing all of our crutches ripped from our life, help us to place our confidence and our faith completely in you. Lean on you. And Lord, I thank you for every time that you've removed from me those things that have caused me to turn to, the, to you, to throw myself upon you, and to return from following after you. Lord, I pray tonight that somehow if there's one here who, who needs to make a decision to lean on you, to trust you, that they'll have the courage to do that as we have this moment of invitation together. May your name be glorified in it because I pray in Jesus' name. Now let's stand together and we're going to have our invitation. We invite you to come this afternoon, this evening, if God speaks to your heart to come.